Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 4, verses 10 through 17, which reads, The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your, blood, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a re restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain lived with his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. We continue uh, in our series on the theme of control um, based on passages from the fourth chapter of Genesis. Um, here is uh, where we've been so far and uh, plan to go uh, today. So September 5, we looked at the first eight verses and talked about um, the favor that was sought by Cain and Abel from God in the context of an offering. Uh, they tried to mm, gain God's favor, and when it, one received it and the other did not, uh, he tried to take it on his own. And then uh, last week, September 12, we looked at the uh, verses 6 to 10, and um, we uh, talked about how... Uh, Cain vented his anger, taking control of Abel's very breath and choked it out of him. Um, God wanted Cain to repent, right? a control alt delete in his life, a reset. But Cain couldn't control uh, his own rage and uh, murdered uh, Abel. Uh, stifling Ab uh, Abel's cry for help. Cain fancied himself uh, free of culpability. But this was not the case. Uh, Cain would be held to account by God, um, whose heart is broken by Abel's death. Uh, harm had been done to innocent life. And so punishment uh, needed to be levied. Uh, we're going to talk about damage today. Damage. Um, and the various attempts to perform damage control. Um, as you saw in the previous slide, that's the message title uh, for today uh, versus damage control. When, when something happens like to a public figure or to an organization um, that uh, creates kind of a, a ripple effect, uh, we often use the term damage control right, to uh, describe efforts to contain the fallout. Uh, usually, this means that the problem um, could not be rectified or kept out of the public eye. Uh, to avoid even more severe losses, uh, resources are applied to protect against worst potential outcomes. So we're going to first examine 
um, various types of uh, damage caused by Cain's heinous act. Um, I was originally planning to kind of first talk about damage and then talk about the control efforts by both Cain and God to kind of contain the damage. But um, as I was working it out, it, there was actually more stuff to talk about than I planned. So I decided to address the control parts uh, more in depth next week. So damage, right? I feel like there's uh, damage to Abel, certainly. That's obvious. Yeah, he lost his life. And also, uh, there was damage to the Lord. Now, I put the Lord in parentheses because I'm not sure theologically we can say that we can damage God, right? But God was pained, God was grieved, God was anguished by what Cain did to Abel. And then, of course, Cain harmed himself, right? We started touching on that last time. But also, in this section, we see how the ground, the earth, the soil, right, uh, that Cain's action brought uh, ill, brought harm, damage uh, to the ground. And then uh, the list could almost go on forever, but like I, I kind of lump in family and society. You know, what, as Cain killed Abel, what happened to his family? What happens to uh, our kind of community or our human society when uh, these kinds of things happen and then I just call it progeny but Cain's descendants right even they in my opinion were negatively impacted by what uh, Cain did okay so we're going to start with the uh, damage to Abel or uh, later on maybe better to say Abel's that there are various types of Abel's or that's how we should make the application so we started last week uh, on what it took for Cain to take to strike down his uh, very own brother, uh, the envy, the blame, the objectification, the dehumanization, uh, the smiting itself, and then the denying, the denial that he had anything to do with it. That's what Cain uh, kind of went through. That's what he had to develop. He had to deaden his heart uh, of any affection or duty towards Abel, so that he could arrive at the point where when he killed Abel, he was so sure that Abel deserved to be killed, deserved to be eliminated, right? I don't think uh, Cain was some sort of like psychopath. I think he demonstrates the human kind of uh, process of justification. When we want to do something bad, when we know that it's bad, we have to justify, we have to like rationalize it in our minds. And, and that's what I tried to trace that process um, in Abel. Sorry, in Cain. Um, I've shared this before, but uh, just when I read the story, I'm, I'm reminded of um, what happened in Rwanda, right? Uh, Rwanda had a long um, history right, in the country in East Africa tiny country, but a long history of enmity and tribalism, right? especially between the two main uh, peoples, the Hutus and the Tutsis. Right? So there's been a lot of ethnic conflict over the years, even uh, civil war. But there was a, especially a period of great violence in 1994. Right? That's just, what, 30, 
almost 30 years ago, 1994. So very modern time when an estimated 500,000 to 800,000, right? 500, you know, in an age of COVID, like who knows what numbers mean anymore, but that's a huge number of people of Tutsis, right? And, and some moderate Hutus, but uh, mostly Tutsis were slaughtered in just three months, uh, a period of time, in the span of three months. So it was especially like brutal, especially uh, compressed. Yeah. Uh, I had a chance to visit one of the memorials there in Rwanda to the genocide. And it's just it's kind of uh, indescribable, right? That, that feeling that you get when you see, like they had one room where it was all skulls of people who had been killed in that, in that specific area, that town. Um, another room had uh, leg bones, so the femurs, you know, the long femurs, right? That's the long bone of our leg. It's there, and then next to it, there's shorter femurs, and those are kids, the children who were uh, killed. Um, even the colonizers, so Belgium was one of the main uh, colonial powers uh, early on, and they uh, exacerbated the problem, right? So in order to kind of protect their own power, they um, installed the Hutu. Sorry, the Tutsis as kind of the government leaders, like all of the primo positions, all of the influence, they installed it in them. And I, I read a book where it argued that they did it because the Hutus looked, I mean, sorry, the Tutsis looked more noble, more European noble, as defined by European standards, than the Hutus. Right? That was the only difference. It wasn't by merit, it wasn't by uh, civility or nobility, it was just by. Uh, facial features. Um, and so the Hutus became disenfranchised. They had no power. Um, and so you could imagine uh, the rage, the unfairness, the protests that uh, kept bubbling up. Uh, and and uh, in, in the early 90s, a big conflict had been brewing uh, for a while. And um, the Hutus started this propaganda uh, campaign where um, they started like kind of hinting that something was about to happen and that they started to demean and use all this kind of derogatory language against the Tutsis. Like the favorite, one of the favorite phrases was calling them cockroaches, right? And somehow that got ingrained in the people's minds so you can see the kind of the dehumanization, right? The the way in which you start like uh, you know fostering hatred and uh, this kind of you know looking down and 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 this disgust at fellow uh, human beings. And then when the sitting president was assassinated, they bl the Hutus blamed the Tutsis and and basically a license to exterminate was issued. 500,000 to 800,000 people in three months' time. Uh, in the book, uh, A Thousand Hills by uh, Stephen Kinzer, he actually begins it by connecting uh, this the Rwandan genocide to the story of Cain and Abel. 
He says that the Hutus were traditionally farmers. They worked the soil. And Tutsis were herdsmen, herdswomen. They took care of livestock, right? And he said that the genesis, if you will, right, of that kind of conflict between peoples and occupations started in the Genesis 4 account. And even in 1994, even in modern uh, East Africa, you still have that problem. Uh, I think the worst thing about the genocide was that most of the victims were killed in their own villages or towns, many by their very own neighbors and fellow villagers. Although roving gangs you know, were particularly brutal, um, the, the crazy thing about this was that people knew each other when they killed them. That's how much the hatred, that's how much the uh, separation, that's how much of the conflict had uh, arisen. Right? Yeah, in order to hurt someone, right, you have to kind of make them, in your mind, uh, deserve being hurt. Right? Like, it's, it's hard to like, uh, attack or even say something bad about someone who's like really like noble or lovable or is sacrificial right you, 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 it's difficult to do that and so we have this ability to kind of take it out on the people that we want to so uh, abel's life was cut short uh, by someone that uh, he should have been able uh, to trust and maybe <clears throat> amongst us, you and I, we kind of feel like Abel sometimes. Right? We've been burned. Someone has betrayed us. Someone has stabbed us in the back. Someone has done damage uh, to us. And that's very possible. It's probable, I bet. The book I referenced last Sunday, right? A book by Miroslav Volf called Exclusion and Embrace. I got through like half of it in time for my uh, pastor's meeting. And uh, if you want to read it, it's, it's, it's recommendable, but um, it takes a lot of concentration. The, just the breadth of a kind of disciplines that he kind of, kind of brings in. And like, I think he's read every book that was ever written. <laughs> it seems kind of, you know, he jumps from you know, authors from Nietzsche all the way to like the sociologists and, and it's just kind of crazy. But uh, one of the things that I really liked about it was, is he's talking about perpetrators and victims, right? He's talking about how, um, in his mind, right, in his, in his experience, and I told you he was part of the, uh, the, the, the Serbian genocide of, of Croats, or all that stuff that happened, the Balkan Wars. Um, he has this really good sections explaining how um, in his mind there's no such thing as an innocent victim, right? There is, at least on a, like on a, a national or ethnic scale, right? that there's so much complication to it. And as you know, he describes the gospel's impact on that. It's it's very helpful, right? Um, at least that particular section. So uh, this is the way that I think about it. If I think I'm able, if I think I'm unable like Abel, I got to think of it this way. If I think I'm an Abel, I bet you think you're an Abel too, right? So uh, if I can um, 
extend my own self-assessment or my own experience or my own grievance. Right? I don't think I'm particularly like a victim, but if I think I'm like that, I bet a lot of us are like that. So um, what I need to do then is the logic that where it takes me is, oh, if we're all ables, right, who are the kings? There's like five or six really bad, bad people out there hurting all of us. I don't think so. I think there's cane likeness, caneness to us as well. Right? Just as we can relate to Abel, I think if we dig, I don't know, deep enough or maybe even just a little bit, we can see that uh, we have been cane like to others at one time or another. Right? That that desire to suppress or eliminate to hate, uh, to hurt others, maybe not with our hands, certainly, I hope not, but to you know, bring about this kind of uh, relational yeah, separation from them. That's you know, very real. Even maybe those that are close to us, we are not immune, we are not above um hurting or damaging um relationships in other words um sorry for the morbidity but i think there's probably a lot of bodies buried in our fields again you know hopefully nothing uh, too traumatic but there are those that have been hurt by us there are those uh who have been damaged um, out there. And, and I was thinking that uh, this time around that maybe studying this passage and hearing a message on it and thinking about it and praying about it, that there may be some opportunity, promptings, nudgings for us to, again, sorry for the morbidity, but to exhume them, right? Get those bodies out of the ground and right, try to make some I don't know, new progress or some conversation. I, I doubt reconciliation or restoration is possible for most situations, but maybe an apology, maybe owning the harm that was either committed or expressing why we felt that this was uh, painful. Perhaps um, that is um, what can take place. Now, within the human framework, um, I think this will be unpleasant, if not <laughs> even more harmful. It could do more harm than good, I, I, I've, I've seen or I think. But I think, you know, we have the Lord Jesus, and, and he changes everything, right? Yeah. The cross uh, can change everything about human conflict and about harm and about suffering and even about sin and guilt. Um, through the cross, Jesus is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, uh, the dividing wall of hostility, according to Ephesians 2. So the cross makes the kind of damage that was caused. It doesn't undo it. It doesn't like make it like it doesn't happen, but it can heal it somehow. Cain could, certainly could not. Abel was gone, gone forever. But with uh, Christ, 
as it says in Hebrews 12, that the blood of Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Right? So in other words, the blood of Abel is not Abel, right? But Jesus' blood uh, can change everything. Uh, and that's been a couple of, of, of gatherings, lunches that I've had. Um, I, I met with someone who, out of the blue, uh, wanted to uh, connect uh, with me. I hadn't really done anything with them in about 10 years. Right? Uh, but and um, but when, we, when we got together, um, we were able to kind of talk about some of the good experiences, some of the positive ways in which God worked, like when we were connected and, and, and even like when we were not uh, connected. Like, you know, there was some very kind of encouragement, encouraging conversations and stuff. And not everything was kind of resolved. I felt like it was still kind of an elephant, you guys know that term, elephant in the room. But still, I, I thought that was kind of, uh, an interesting kind of um, uh, experience, and uh, they were going to do something, uh, a kind of a new phase, a different part of the world. So I got a chance to pray, and so you know, I was thankful that where you think like, oh, that that thing's you know dead and buried, right? it was kind of out of the blue. Uh, God made, reminded me of, um, I guess, His ability to. Uh, uh, make things better, change things, whatever. And then um, I actually had lunch with with a friend who we we get together regularly every couple, a few times a year. And he was telling me that he had some news to update me on. And uh, so I was like, oh, I wonder what this is about. And uh, he shared with me. So his family is kind of, um, you know, his family's, dysfunctional um, he has not his family has actually dissolved has become dissolved and um, the children do not really uh, have not they're estranged about that estranged uh, from from him but um, after about four or five years he said one of his sons called him up and you know, started to kind of talk on a regular basis. They got together like on Father's Day, and um, now they're kind of speaking regularly. And you know, we, he and I, whenever we got together, we'd always you know want that and pray for that and dream like that would ever happen. And uh, you know, it's still a long ways from being like you know full blown connection, but. That glimmer, he's kind of a, a very common, collected person. But I was like all kind of, I was spilling my coffee and I was flecking food at him. And like, I kept saying, toast, toast our coffees and teas to each other. Because I was so thankful that, you know, the ice had been broken, right, uh, with him. Like, to me, it was kind of like a, a resurrection of, of, of his desire to reconnect with his uh, children, right? So as I talk about damage, right, I, I do want to impress the gravitas of it. And yet, um, you know, when I'm going to, as I'm doing it, I, I want to talk about control, the, 
the kinds of ways God can uh, move and work to um, to show us that uh, how even though the damage is so so severe, so catastrophic, right? In Christ, there might be uh, there might be hope. In Christ, there is a chance. Okay, let's talk about the damage to the Lord, right? Uh, we talked a little bit last week time about how God was moved to sorrow by the blood of Abel crying out for justice. God who created human beings as a crown of creation. He sees them demonstrate a penchant for baseness and hatred and, and for homicide. Right? Uh, how would that make you feel? Like if you built something or if you invested in somebody, right? One of your kids, one of your close friends, right, that you had a great relationship with, if they this happened, right? I think it would cause great distress and anguish. Your heart would be broken. And that's the picture that we get. What have you done? You know, God just almost incredulous at what Cain has uh, done uh, to Abel. I remember hearing a, a pastor slash missionary talk about um, one of the experiences where uh, he had like, uh, like planted a ministry in like I think a village area where there was no uh, Christians and it had really like uh, really sprung up and there was a lot of excitement, a lot of fruit and like, you know, numbers were growing and like a few years in, um, it turned out that one of his deacons uh, had killed uh, somebody in, uh, I think a fit of rage or passion or something. And, uh, you know, as he was, like, you know, went to the police station or, or the authorities, as he was thinking about, well, you know, I poured into this guy, and he was like one of my first fruit, and he was, you know, one of the church leaders, you know, one of the first deacons, and now he was, you know, he had admitted to, to killing somebody, right? I just like how burdensome that was to the pastor as he shared the testimony. And I argue that's what the Lord was going through, right? When Cain killed Abel, right? It just, it just kind of, the, the fall of mankind was bad when Adam and Eve took the fruit, right? But now, yeah, our life uh, was lost. And, you know, I think Cain probably had no idea. I think maybe he thought he could hide from God, but when God comes to him and then Cain denies any sort of responsibility, any sort of knowledge of it, how even like that must have made God even more uh, broken hearted, right? Because the damage that Cain did to that relationship, that probably was the most consequential injury of all that Cain could have afflicted because without God, right? Cain's life becomes completely destabilized. Morality, security, purpose, psychological peace. These are all tied up with God. And he blew it all up when he chose to kill Abel. All right. In the New Testament, we're warned uh, not to you know, grieve God or specifically grieve the Holy Spirit. And you, you know, we could explain that in, in any number of ways. Uh, but the context of that verse is in Ephesians 4 is it's actually about living as children of light. Okay? And um, much of it has to do with how we treat our neighbor, our brothers and sisters, 
right, with respect to deceit, anger, theft, unwholesome talk, bitterness, malice, and the like. So there's a lot of stuff that Cain allowed to enter into his life before he destroyed Abel, right? So we can see how yeah, God is bound up uh, with his children, and particularly their interrelations. So when Cain killed Abel, and Cain denied the fundamental connection of it, right? It, I think, blew up in a sense God's plan or His what He was trying to um, help or develop or work out in this first uh, family. Because of what Cain did, he could not remain in the Lord's presence, right? Um, and so there is that, you know, what I see when I describe sin, I, I always think of it as a alienation or a separation, right? Separated Adam from Eve, it separated Adam within himself, right? started to feel guilt, it separated Adam from the ground, it separated Adam from God especially, right? And in Cain, it's even further. Now Cain is outside, beyond, the Lord's um, presence. And that becomes, to me, the primary issue. And the Lord's presence, you know, meant everything. Uh, but what we see Cain after he commits this sin is that it just gets worse and worse, right? Independence, separation, alienation, uh, enmity, right? Cain uh, ends up Right? by himself. Uh, and you don't see God in the picture very much. You know, you know the Bible is very realistic. It, it doesn't expect perfection from us. It knows that we're, we're going to sin, right? That's, that's a given. Even after we're saved, even after we've experienced the Holy Spirit, even after all the wonderful things, sin remains a reality because we have, still have a sinful nature. That's how we're taught to be sanctified. We're taught to struggle against it. We're taught to depend on God, rely on each other. All those kind of admonitions and, and protections are there, but we'll still fall, right? So we're not surprised. God's not surprised. I'm not surprised. You shouldn't be surprised when we sin, right? But it's what we do after we sin that I think is the issue, right? Not that I could, we should condone, but maybe we could understand. Like that's what I've been trying to do. I'm trying to share share that Cain's heart is not too far away from, not too distant from us. So be careful, right? Maybe uh, you know it's, it's horrific what Cain did, but it happened. And at that moment when God came to Cain, right, to restore, to get him to confess, to uh, maybe even forgive. That's when Cain, to me, took an even worse step, right? Because he stepped away from God. He denied the Lord again. He denied the Lord when he killed Cain, Abel. Sorry, when he killed Abel. But he denied the Lord again and when he says, am I my brother's keeper? Stay away from me. It's not my fault. You know, this... Uh, sinful attitude, this insolence, right? This desire to um, to kick God out of anything, right? Whether holiness or guilt or you know whatever responsibility, that is what is most grievous of all to me. That's what 
hurts God the most because he knows that we can't survive on our own. Right? He knows that we have to, we, there's no way that life is livable uh, outside of his presence. And so uh, the fact that we fall in sin and make mistakes and offend the, 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 the standard of you know, the holiness of God, that's a problem, but that's not the biggest problem. Because we've all done it, and we will all do it. The biggest problem is a failure to repent, a failure to get back in the presence of God, a failure to acknowledge that we did this and that we need him. Right? And, and you see it in Cain. I see it in myself. I see it in a lot of people that once sin starts, you know, we're in the presence of sin. Let me say it that way. Yeah, God becomes fainter and fainter. Yeah, he, he, he kind of, he's just not there anymore, right? You know, we're more involved with the practical demands, more involved with trying to make it on our own. You know, the, the things of the world, the things of survival, the things that everyone else is pursuing, that becomes really important to us. And, you know, uh, a um, a vibrant relationship with God becomes really kind of uh, almost unrecognizable uh, sometimes. Um, I've already started into this next one, but the damage that um, Cain does uh, to himself, right? Yeah, the life of isolation, right? That's epitomized in this um, building of a city. And it wasn't like a, a great town or something like that. It was basically a, a, a fortress, a walled compound. Why? Because he's paranoid that everyone else is just like he is. What did he do? He murdered his brother. What if someone's going to come after me? That, that kind of fear and insecurity and paranoia, that, that dominates him. And so what he's going to do is going to build a city. But is the city named after God? Is the city named after Abel? No, it's named after his son because Cain wants to pass on his own name. Right? to his son. What has his son done? Nothing. Right? But that's Cain's new mindset. And uh, this is what the damage that we can see uh, to him. Right? Um, let me move on to the damage to the ground, because I, I feel like that's kind of really interesting, right? That not, not only is there offense to the characters of the narrative, but the ground, right? Cain has, if you will, soiled the soil with Abel's blood. The soil from which Cain had derived his livelihood had now been defiled. The ground um, used to produce Cain's crop, but Cain produced blood for the land to drink. Thus the land refused to bear fruit for him any longer. It would no longer cooperate. In Genesis 3, after an Adam and Eve sinned, the ground was cursed, so it would be hard for Adam to uh, cultivate. But here, Cain himself is directly accursed. He is barred from ever advantageously working the soil that had opened up to swallow the blood of Abel. And so that not only was this a frustration of Cain's um, abilities, but it was a gutting of his, yeah, of his trade, of his occupation. It's kind of like baseball players. You know, if you're a baseball player and you gamble, oh man, the public and baseball, baseball dumb, you, you are a pariah. Like Pete Rose, he's never going to get into the Hall of Fame. Right, uh, shoeless Joe Jackson. These guys who bet on the game while they were playing, 
Yeah, people hate that, right? And that's what Cain basically did. He spit or spat <laughs> upon his own uh, upon his own occupation. In a sense, literally, the ground made him persona non grata, right? Effectively, the ground banished Cain, right? Not only was it like working the crops or working the ground, but the the ground didn't want him around. The Eden could no longer is no longer a habitable place for him, and Cain is yeah banished, and he becomes this restless wanderer. Right? Bloodshed was the most polluting of all substances. Unatoned for murders polluted the holy land, making it unfit for the divine presence. So God had to yeah, remove uh, Cain. Uh, mankind was made in God's image, therefore homicide must be avenged. Now, in most times, you know, in those days, like, you know, relatives, nearest living male relative would avenge murder, right? But there's one, I found one occasion where expulsion was an acceptable remedy. That was Absalom, after Absalom, the king's son, killed his half-brother, I think it was Amnon, also the king's son, for raping Absalom's sister, um, Absalom is sent to another country. Right? And eventually, he's allowed to come back, and it creates more problems. But um, it's kind of what happened to Cain. Right? Cain, if we go with like capital punishment, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, life for life, you know, Cain should have been executed. But God sent him away. Right? And I'm going to talk about that next time. That that was actually uh, an opportunity and an extension, right? To uh, try to redeem him uh, once more. Yeah, the, to destroy the land, right? the land that you depend on, right? to defile something. It's like if you go to the Louvre or the Met Museum and then you defecate or you do something horrible, right? You're going to be banned from that place for life, and that's basically what. That's the damage that. Uh, Cain did. And, and I'm wondering if we could, I'm sure, right, we could probably extend this application or discussion to some of the environmental damage and disasters that mankind is is, is perpetrating. Yeah, um, I'm just gonna, I was, I was gonna keep it short anyway about the family, but you know, it ripped the family apart. Eve lost both sons on the same day. Abel to murder and Cain uh, to banishment. Remember, I said there's this hint that Cain's supposed to be the deliverer, the guy who crushes the the serpent's head. <laughs> right? Far from it. Right? He's the one that breaks up the family. He's not only the villain of the story; he might be the villain of all uh, history. Right? And, and he, and he, you know, going moving to the damage to the his own his own sons, his own descendants. Right? We see that they will imitate him. They will live a godless life. They'll live a life depending on self and several generations down, there's mass murder. It's almost a boast. Cain killed a guy and, you know, he had, a, you know, he was avenged, he would be avenged seven times if someone killed him. I, Lamech, killed two guys. So I'll be avenged 77 times. Sin, right? Sin has this kind of impact. Uh, that's why, right, we must uh, control the damage 
right? Not by our own efforts, but by the grace of God. Okay? So it, that's why the cross is so serious. It's so, right? I mean, why all that? Why did it have to be so terrible, right? I think it's commensurate with how terrible sin is. Some people, you know, that deny sin or deny, like, accountability, you know, deny hell, right? Uh, I, I just, I've asked them, I said, well, why the cross then? If God's going to forgive everybody in the end, right, if everything's going to be okay, if God's love is so great that, that he won't, you know, there's no such thing as hell, I just say, okay, then explain why the cross has to be so so terrible, right? And I think it's because sin, it really is uh, so terrible. Let's uh, come to God in prayer. Let's uh, think about damage. Um, have we been, have we, uh, in our sin, dam what have we damaged? I tried to give uh, like a list here, right? I listed Abel, the Lord, uh, himself, the ground, family and society, the progeny. Take some time and ask God to show us. And then um, if you want to go further, ask God uh, how uh, he would control uh, this terrible impact, how he would um, make the cross be our solution again. Lord, it's easy, I feel, to condemn Cain uh, for uh, doing this terrible thing. Um, it's easy to feel like we're so often the Abels um, in this uh, story. Uh, Lord, as we uh, maybe take a hard look at the damage that, that we've caused, maybe not intentionally or maybe not so... Um, uh, premeditatively, but uh, certainly uh, we have uh, hurt others around us. Um, please um, bring to us your solution. Uh, show us why uh, we need you. Uh, help us to be protected from the consequences of what we might have done uh, so that uh, we can experience uh, your gracious forgiveness, uh, that we can be restored to you and to others. Um, please show us afresh, um, especially in this time where um, isolation and fear and maybe 
a lot of relational bonds have been strained because of the pandemic. Help us to come back strong by your, uh, by your strength and by your grace. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.